Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more with just one O, ct.com slash will. And for a limited time, you can get 10% off. That's morect.com slash will. From Christianity Today, this is The Art of Pastoring. I'm Jared Wilson. And I'm Ronnie Martin. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. Hey, welcome to The Art of Pastoring. My name is Ronnie Martin. Really excited to be here with my co-host, Jared Wilson. I want to thank all of you for just listening, leaving great reviews. We hope that this has been a, a great help and a blessing for you. This has been an encouraging pod so far for me and Jared, and we just were glad to be able to be an encourager as we are encouraged. Jared, see what's going on, man. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great, brother. It's a, it's a very cold morning here at the homestead. Oh, my goodness. Yes. We were supposed to get wintry mix last night, but but we didn't get any. So it's all, it's all good. It's no, we didn't get anything. Okay. Gotcha. We are, we're excited. We're, we're here with uh, Daniel Harrell, who is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. This is our first guest that we've ever had on The Art of Pastoring, even though The Art of Pastoring is fairly new. Um, yeah, I feel like we should have sound effects here, like, so, like applause or... Yeah, we're going to need some Star Wars editing. <laughs> That's sure. right. In fact, I'm going to demand that that happens. Okay. So if, next if season. I'll, next season. And I, and I know our I know our editor is listening to this, so I think that's, <laughs> that's going to be our elitist request to him right now for sure. But we're here with uh, Daniel Harrell, editor in chief of Christianity Today magazine, and we're excited because we are going to be talking about a particular topic that I think is really, really close to the heart of, of many pastors, which is the, the subject of grief. But before we get into that, we kind of want to get a little bit of Daniel's background. And Jared, you wanted to kind of, you kind of wanted to ask him some, some questions to get a little bit of his story, his own story of, of his uh, pastoring. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see you were 23 years at Park Street in Boston, yeah. which is a pretty uh, historic, significant place. I, I pastored in New England as well, not near that long. But, uh, so I was in Vermont in a little town called Middletown Springs in, in right. Rutland County, but I've been to Park Street. And of course, I'm assuming it's the same Park Street as Harold Ockengay. And, uh, I was a little after him, but yeah. Yeah, a little bit after him for sure. But I would just love to hear some of your your pastoral journey. I, I know you were some you were elsewhere before that as well. 
But if you could just kind of give us some background of, of your time as a pastor, I think that would be really helpful and, and interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, I came to New England from North Carolina, where I was born and raised and ended up in New England, mostly to be near the Red Sox. So I got up to New England and studied at Gordon-Conwell. And out of, of there, ended up doing a, a short stint at a small church in New Hampshire. But the, the Park Street opportunity opened up like a lot of pastoral opportunities do in a, a youth ministry position. So jumped in there, really no intention of staying there 23 years, but one thing led to another. And, and I was kind of, I got there right, I like to tell people sort of in the Ally McBeal years for people that remember that show. So a lot of young professionals rolling into Boston in the late <laughs> 90s, early aughts. And, you know, we were kind of on the back end of some of the kind of Willow Creek phenomenon back in the day. And so launched this church within a church that, exploded back in, again, the late 90s and, and throughout the, the early aughts. And it was just a really exciting time to to be in downtown Boston and to, you know, not only get to, to minister amongst, you know, just some fascinating people who were just making their way through Boston, but just a ton of students too, of course, and just kind of the whole Harvard, MIT, BU, BC crowd was a big part of what we did and a fascinating place. It, but I do like to tell people that, you know, we pastors have shelf lives. And so, you know, after 23 years, it kind of became time to, to make a shift. And so I, I started kind of looking, putting feelers out, kind of opened up to maybe what God would have for me. And so I ended up here in Minnesota. So I like to tell people that I'm a Southerner by birth, a New Englander by choice, and now I'm Minnesotan by the will of God. And I pastored here for 10 years and sort of toward the end of that, and of course, part of the story around grief with my, my wife dying of pancreas cancer, the new CEO of, of Christianity Today, who was actually an old friend of Park Street, he was a, a member of, of the congregation back in the day. I saw that he had been named the new CEO of, of Christianity Today, Tim Dalrymple, I reached out by text and just to congratulate him. We both still had our Boston area codes. He popped back and, and asked me if I'd you know, ever thought of leaving the church? And, you know, I was like, well, every day. So that kind of led to a further conversation. And lo and behold, as of last January, I'm editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. So it's been a, a marvelous and unexpected and tragic road all kind of rolled into one. But yeah, here I am. So just just finishing up my uh, my first year at C2. Okay. Yeah, I had it backwards. I, I read your bio that you were in Minnesota before, but you're Minnesota after. So it's a similar. So I went from Texas to Tennessee to New England to Missouri. So from the south to New England to the Midwest, sounds like a similar yeah, yeah, journey to you yeah. as well. I wonder if you have anything to say just about the cultural, the cultural shifts. I know Minnesota is somewhat different than than Missouri, but it's, I guess still considered the Midwest. I would. Yeah, well, well I, you know, I think Minnesotans think of Minnesota as like the Vermont of the Midwest. <laughs> okay, all right. I don't know if Vermonters <laughs> think of Vermont as the Minnesota of New England, but um, I doubt it. No. But yeah, no, Minnesota, I think, was certainly a, a bit of a, a shift, unlike Boston, which is a very transient city. You know, Minneapolis is kind of much more stable in that, you know, people who are born here often return here. It tends to be this kind of classic Midwestern Scandinavian reserve, which, of course, made all of the George Floyd tragedy just just crazy because you would think Minneapolis, of all places, would not 
be the the hotbed of that unrest. But in fact, you know, I think a lot of that Midwestern reserve serves as a kind of facade over which, you know, a lot of challenges happen. And we have learned, of course, that that Minneapolis is one of the the cities in the United States with the the deepest disparity racially in the country. So that's been that's been its own challenge. But we're here. We were we're going to move we were going to move Chicago, but pandemic changed those plans. I'm the the dad of a a 13-year-old, and she's moving her way toward high school, and so we're probably just going to stay parked here, certainly in the short term, if not through her high school. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that, Daniel. Part of your journey into becoming editor-in-chief of Christianity Today has also been just some new podcasts that you are recording right now called Surprised by Grief, and the link to the trailer of that is in the show notes. Man, I would love it if you could tell us a little bit of just kind of the story behind what, what brought on this new series of pods that you're going to be doing? Back in 2019, my wife of 15 years, Dawn, developed some uh, back pain, which we thought was was just that. But as it increased in intensity, we finally got ourselves into a, a doctor and were, of course, blown away to find out that she had stage four pancreas cancer. Bad prognosis, started chemotherapy, but she only lived two more months and died on Easter of 2019. If um, you're familiar at all with pancreas cancer, some people, of course, have followed the travails of Alex Trebek. And of course, we know Tim Keller has pancreas cancer. It's a devastating cancer, the uh, number two killer with only a 10% survival rate over 10 years. And so, the again, the prognosis wasn't good. But, you know, I think that because I was pastoring a church at the time, my wife Dawn was seminary educated herself, had grown up in Angola and a woman of deep faith. I mean, all of that really played into our journey and just her own passion around what she knew she was going to die. How could she do that well? And how to invite a congregation into that was pastors. One of our our chronic challenges is, is that balance between the private and public persona in as much as the private one ever really exists. And so, you know, as people made their way into our very, very personal space, which we invited them into, because if you need your church at any time, it's when you're going through something like that. So, so folks made their way in and it was, it was powerful and awful and beautiful and glorious and all the things that, that death and, and the gospel and their intersection bring to bear. But part of what happened in the course of all that is I had blogged about our, our cancer voyage using Carrying Bridge, which is a, a virtual site that a lot of people use. And the community that arose around that was, was astounding. I mean, people that I had and probably would have never spoken with for the rest of my life emerged through that. And suddenly, it was how I reconnected with Tim Dalrymple at, at CT was, was through that site. And the support and the engagement was was overwhelming. In the midst of that, another person with a CT connection, Clarissa Mall, whose husband Rob Mall wrote for CT and wrote ironically a book called The Art of Dying while he was working at CT, tragically died on a, a, a mountain hike in Washington State. And she and I connected as as often happens when you've suffered similar tragedies of loss. We were introduced to one another and and just began to to connect around. For me, 
cancer loss for her, tragic sudden loss, um, suddenly solo parenting, and all the challenges that that brings. And kind of in the midst of that, as I was launched at CT, began to think about how our stories and their intersection might uh, contribute to this topic of grief, which nobody wants to talk about until they have to talk about it. But of course, everybody eventually has to talk about it. So we've been working on a podcast that, that hopefully will add light to that hard road that we all have to travel and perhaps shed some redemptive aspects that we can see as the gospel teaches us that truly the way of the cross is the way of life and that grief is intimately tied to love and that all those things just go together. And as we think about life and death and as we contemplate our own life and death and living well as we take up our crosses, how can we do that intentionally and with eyes wide open and with a, a kind of a kind of joy even that yeah can can shed life on the shed light rather on the life that we have to live now. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Daniel, the last three or four years of, of my last ministry were so punctuated by, by grief, largely from cancer. Somebody would get sick and we would walk them to the finish line. And then it seemed like it instantly someone else was, was sick, lost two friends and members to brain tumors. There was breast cancer. The last saint that I had the privilege of ministering to died of pancreatic cancer. And it, it's just shaping, isn't it? I've, you know, certainly have not lost someone as close as, as you have. And yet it changes who you are. I think you, you spoke well to this, just in the sense of life is the way of the cross. We talked recently, Ronnie and I, just about how ministry is the moments where you're getting punched in the face, where you are suffering. That's what ministry is. I think that's certainly what life is as well. I wonder if you could speak to to the pastor in particular who may be listening about how grief helps you pastor. I don't think we think of it that way. We think of it only as a hindrance, which of course it is. And yet there's a distinct difference, I think, between those who pastors say, to use the cliche that, you know, they pastor with a limp versus those who do not. How does grief shape pastoral ministry? You know, I, it's an interesting story. I mean, on the one hand, I like to observe how most of us pastors, you know, have built-in Messiah complexes, and we're eager to, to be there for others uh, in their, their crisis. And it's an honor when those opportunities to be alongside someone at 
the moment when they get their diagnosis or when they die with family members at the funeral. But then suddenly when you're on the other side and are needing the pastor and needing the church yourself, there's kind of a a full circleness to it. I mean, suddenly you recognize that congregational life is is not a one-way street. It truly is a genuine two-way street. And I think there's a choice that I found I had to make as a pastor to receive that which I had been accustomed only to give. And there were wonderful surprises in that. I mean, my church stepped up incredibly to care for us. But interestingly, and we'll we'll probably talk about this some in the podcast, but interestingly, it also changed our relationship dramatically. So that once the funeral was over and we tried to recalibrate the relationship and step back into our pre-assigned roles, so to speak, it didn't work. They had, something had shifted and I think there was, I don't know if I would call it a concern on their part, but certainly a loss of, well, let me, let me put it this way. You know, again, as pastors would get, you know, we, we do spend time, whether intentionally or not, sort of shining our images and personas. I mean, we are in control in a bit about how it is we present ourselves to our congregations. And, you know, grief has its way and loss has its way of, of really tarnishing all of that. And, and I think importantly, but the extent to which congregations want their pastors to be too tarnished is probably an interesting conversation to have. And I think it was hard for some people, maybe some of the people in our leadership particularly, to feel like that I was going to be able going forward to serve in a way that they perceived the, the church needed. Now, again, they could have been right. We didn't get a chance to try it. But I think what I felt like at the, at the time was, wow, I, I'm, I'm better equipped than ever to kind of lead this congregation now. But maybe I wasn't. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. You have a lot of thoughts right in the throes of your loss that time's going to determine. But it was challenging. I ended up reading a lot of books and uh, memoirs from, from pastors who had lost children or lost spouses or kind of how they tried to, to re-engage with their, their pastoral calling and not many were able to, you know, something just upended. And I don't know if that's a problem with the vocation or if that's an issue with kind of the way congregations are, are sort of set up. I don't, I don't know, but part of me would have really enjoyed the opportunity to try to pastor out of that loss. I wonder just in the sense of having priorities, not just rearranged, but really highlighted that you perhaps became, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is there less tolerance for some of the nonsense (laughs) and perhaps less reticence even for outside of an experience like that, we might consider the harder stuff of ministry. This puts everything in perspective to where there's maybe even an emboldening about certain issues. I, I know I'm sounding vague here, but no, no. I mean, you know, I think that you know, my grief counselor, who was fabulous, made the remark, well, you've suffered the worst kind of loss. So, really, there's a freedom in that. And I think that's true. I think, you know, some people took that when I would, would share that perspective as 
kind of, well, you know, then nothing else matters. If your loss just trumps everything we've gone through, then how are we ever going to talk about anything mundane? But, you know, the, the story from the Gospels that strikes me is when Jesus is talking to Peter about having to die. And, you know, Peter just will have none of it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And again, not to to compare myself too much to Jesus, again, the Messiah complex. But I felt some of that, you know, that sense of, of well, this is what I want to talk about. And the response being, well, that's not what we want to talk about. We want to go back to the good news and not the hard news. But, but what happens when you've gone through this kind of loss is that, to your, to your point, the perspective on that good news shifts, because suddenly you've discovered that the hard news can be good news, but it's just different. Might not be happy news. Yeah, this really reminds me of something I've experienced. I've seen other pastors go through and experience. And it's that sometimes a congregation, they just don't know what to do with a pastor's pain. Because in that particular moment, it's like a role reversal occurs. So what they're doing is they're, they're looking at the one who has always been there for their pain. And it's almost as if they have to learn what it looks like to be there and to minister to the person that ministers to them. And you've been touching a little bit on that, but what do you see as maybe some helpful things to encourage pastors with when they're experiencing just a devastating loss and they need some people whether it's in their congregation or maybe even outside of that circle to minister to them, what does a pastor do in that situation? What are some of the resources that you found helpful and maybe some things you learned along the way that you would even do differently today? I mean, obviously in some sense, it goes without saying that you can't wait until the loss happens to begin to cultivate that, to be able to rely on your congregation for support when tragic loss occurs you need to have been willing to rely on your congregation before. And I I remember probably 10, 12 years into my time in Boston, because of the transient nature of Boston itself, so many of my friends outside of the church had moved on by the time, and I was still there 12 years in. And I made this very conscious decision that uh, I was going to cultivate friendships within the congregation and do that, do that challenging work of, of figuring out how to be pastor slash friend. And it was work. I mean, there was this sense in which you had to address with these particular relationships this, this dual role and recognize that, that it was going to be different and, and to speak honestly about that. But part of the beauty of that is that so many of those friendships that I cultivated in Boston, you know, flew out to Minneapolis for Dawn's funeral. I mean, they have sustained through the years and are are now some of my my dearest friends. All that said, I I don't want to suggest that that it's not awkward and, and difficult because people have their expectations. They have what they need from you in that role. In fact, there's this, this sense that, you know, when people join a church, there's a kind of unexpressed contract that starts, you know, you're going to be the pastor and do these things. I'm going to be the parishioner, congregant member, and I'm going to do these things. And this, this, this dance is how we're going to do it. And as long as everybody plays their part, it'll be fabulous. When something happens to upend this, all that has to be renegotiated. And I think for pastors, you just have to, if, if you're going to stay 
for any amount of time in a church. I mean, if you're just going to be there three or four years, that's one thing. But if you're planning to stay or imagine yourself staying, then I think you have to just begin to renegotiate that contract early and begin to, to lead in a way that invites people into your personal space. Again, boundaries and, and all of those important things notwithstanding, that you've got to be able to both model that kind of vulnerability and openness and try to help people, again, reimagine what all that is going to look like. I, you know, I think the thing sort of uh, related to this that surprised me was how when Don got sick, one of the, the things that I felt people sort of wrestling with was, wow, if this tragedy can happen to you, what does this say about my faith? It, it really affected the way people thought about God. Because if the pastor's not safe, what chance do I have? Which again is, is folly and ridiculous, but, but it's kind of one of the things that people fall into. So anyway, I, I guess I would say, Ronnie, that, that I, I just think you have to anticipate that loss and grief are going to be part of your life, even as the pastor, especially as the pastor, and that the steps you can begin to make early on in your congregation when things aren't hard sets you up for when things are. And I think that's really helpful. It's it's almost like the investment that you've been making with them. Yeah. When something unexpected happened to you as it did, they were able to step into that particular level of loss and grief with you in a way that they had already been doing all these years because they had gotten to receive the kind of vulnerability and transparency that you had, had already been sharing with them. And But what a difficult thing to do as a pastor, not being able to anticipate what might be on the horizon. But I think it's a really good word for us in terms of how we interact with our congregations, just given the fact that we don't know what kind of grief that we are going to be facing down the road. And we are going to need our people to be able to step into it with us in a very meaningful way. I think that's a really, really good word. Jared, do you have anything else that, that would you think would be helpful for us here? Yeah, you know, I'm just going to add, just based on what Daniel was last sharing in terms of the church's response to these things, right now we're in a season where it's very easy to kind of, especially for pastors, to kind of pick on the church because they feel picked on by the church with all the upheaval and transitioning and angry people and people leaving and all that sort of thing. But there's something about when brokenness happens, when there's this eruption of the real, right, of, of suffering where we see like the, the the beauty of the church, and I'm sure there's exceptions, but the Lord, I think, has designed this family to really shine when that that jar is is broken open. You begin to see the, the treasure in a way you don't otherwise. So I think I think your story helps speak to that, and I hope would be a good means of encouragement for pastors right now who may be thinking very cynical, pessimistic thoughts about the church in 2020 and going forward that, yeah, she, she really is beautiful. She's, she is broken, but she's beautiful as well. We've been speaking with Daniel Harrell, who is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, pastoral veteran, and co-host of the upcoming podcast, Surprise by Grief. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the Art of Pastoring podcast. Yeah, thanks you guys too for, for this good work you're doing. And we thank you, listener, for taking the time. Hope this was a blessing to you. And until next time, thanks for listening to the Art of Pastoring podcast. Open now the crystal fountain.
If you're liking the show, please take a minute and give us a rating and review in iTunes. It helps other people find us. You can find Ronnie and me on Twitter at, at Ronnie J. Martin and at Jared C. Wilson. Feel free to hit us up with questions and potential topics for the show. We'd love to hear from you. The Art of Pastoring is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper, editing by Mike Cosper and Aaron Leslie, mixing by Aaron Leslie. Our theme song is Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah by Jeremy Casella.